0: We've spent a lot of time in this series talking about structure, history, and context. And we've learned a lot, but none of that would matter if it weren't for the existence of the local church.
1: The local church is where mission really happens. Where relationships are built, where lives are changed, and sometimes where people are hurt. The local church community can be healthy, vibrant, and beautiful, Or it can be unhealthy and damaging. But a healthy local church is the foundation for the Seventh-day Adventist church as an organization. It's where our theology lives in the flesh. It's where the gospel is shared. It's where the rubber meets the road.
0: The structure of the Seventh-day Adventist church exists to provide support for ministry that's done on the ground level. But we really haven't talked much about what that mission is.
1: Yeah, we have broad strokes. The mission of the North American Division, as officially voted, is quote, to reach North America and the world with the distinctive Christ-centered Seventh-day Adventist message of hope and wholeness.
0: But that's pretty broad. What does that actually look like and does it look the same everywhere?
1: I'm Nina Vallado.
0: And I'm Caleb Isley. This is How the Church Works, a deep dive into the inner workings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and why you should care.
1: In today's episode, four different places, four very different churches, and what each of them is doing to impact the world around them. First stop, the Upper East Side, New York.
2: So my name is Todd Stout, and I am lead pastor at Church of the Advent Hope, which is, the building is physically located in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. We're here in the heart of the city and rooted in the heart of the city. And uh, I have been here, just celebrated our 12th anniversary here in uh, New York. And my wife and I moved here. She was six months pregnant. And now we have uh, three kids, all born and bred New Yorkers, all born within 10 blocks of the church building here. So we have uh, integrated ourselves not only into the city, but into the the neighborhood here in the Upper East Side.
1: Evan Hope is located centrally in the Upper East Side. It's a few blocks from Central Park, a 10-minute walk from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, And it has an interesting history, one that reflects the change that Manhattan has gone through in the last century.
2: Yeah, so that goes back to 1956, actually before that. But uh, there was a German group that was meeting, actually several groups that were meeting throughout the city, and they purchased property here in the Upper East Side with the intent to build a building. As the story goes, it was like German nannies who saved up their pennies literally to buy the property and build the church in a location that now is one of the most expensive zip codes in the world they had the foresight to build here in a neighborhood we'd have a very hard time buying property in now so we're really thankful for their for their work on that so over the years and particularly in in the 1980s there was a transition to english they recognized that the german population in the neighborhood which was german at the time was changing dramatically and so they made a strategic decision to be more inclusive and switch over to English as the primary language. And that opened the door over the next few decades to really become a multi-ethnic church, which today I think one of the defining features of the congregation is that it's incredibly diverse and and multi-ethnic.
0: The people that make up the community of Advent Hope reflect the same diverse backgrounds and experiences that make up the collection of humans of New York.
2: So New York definitely is diverse. With that said, I think Avon Hope reflects that really in, intentionally in even ways maybe the, the city doesn't always represent mm-hmm. that, in that we have diversity certainly ethnically, but also socioeconomically and other aspects too, including age diversity. We have really young little babies and we have older folk as well. And so that really brings kind of a rich dynamic to the community and, again, does represent the city. With that said, sometimes the city can be somewhat segregated, certainly in areas. And so it's really cool to have a congregation that matches the city, if not even excels in, in the area of diversity.
1: When you think of the term worldly, what comes to mind? It's often used as a derogatory term, something that others, people, outside of one particular bubble. Evan Hope has been referred to as a worldly church, but worldly, for them, means something different.
2: Yeah, we lean into that idea of, of worldliness. So that, that certainly can have negative connotations, but we've leaned into the fact that that there is a worldly aspect that is positive, And that means engaged with what's happening in the world and in our local community and our city. And so that side of the worldliness, like aware of what's happening, aware of the needs, aware of the hopes and dreams of, of society at large, like we, we do lean into that side of the worldliness, if you will. It's a little tongue in cheek using the worldliness term because it's a little provocative, but that's what we mean, I think, when we say worldly. And again, I think that's a really important element if you're going to be a church that's connected to your your community at large that you've you've got to know what's going on you got to know what the hopes and fears and dreams are of the community and we certainly have tried to be intentional about that but then we also have just people who are engaged in you know everything from local government to business in the city obviously and those people are connected with what's happening in the city
0: within adventism There can be a culture of distrust and even fear when you talk about cities. Because Adventist theology often revolves around revelation and potential persecution, many Adventists think that we shouldn't have a presence in cities or that we should remove ourselves from the culture around us and run to the hills. But that's not what everyone is called to do. Later in life, Ellen White recognized the need for Adventists to work in urban centers, where there are a lot of people with a great amount of needs. Needs that Adventism can address both spiritually and physically.
2: I personally love and appreciate operating in an environment that is secular because I think it allows us to engage uh, Jesus and Christianity as a whole in a fresh way people are not as as burdened by some of the baggage that comes with being in a overtly christian culture to be thoughtful about your language and you have to be thoughtful about the way you talk about people using terms like us and them and making these divisions that are kind of these false divisions are not helpful I think there's just an awareness that we've had to have of like on any given Sabbath worship gathering, or quite frankly, any any gathering we have, it's not unlikely that we're going to have people who are engaging with Christianity for the first time, or certainly engaging with Adventism for the first time. So that shapes how we talk about people, it shapes how we talk about ourselves. Again, I think that's been a positive rather than a negative overall. So yes, there are challenges, but it's a lot more fun to to try to figure out how to work through those challenges and think of them as opportunities rather than barriers that we have to overcome.
3: In
1: New York, everyone has somewhere to be. People are busy, tired, and spread out. Manhattan is only about 13 and a half miles long and 2.3 miles wide. But because there are so many people crammed into so little space, it takes a long time and a lot of planning to get anywhere. Most people use the subway system. And if you're traveling from the outer boroughs, it can take almost an hour to get into the city. So how do you do ministry where people don't have time? You give them what they need, community.
2: We've spent the last three to four years really intentionally trying to build community groups. So groups that were meeting throughout the week that had specific aspects that they were, were focusing on or or attributes that they were doing. But then there are a lot of the other, other things, you know, obviously we have fellowship meal is a big part of just like, uh, you know, a lot of Adventist churches. That's a big part of actually what we do. We have young adults throughout the city who are here and everybody not that young adults are the only ones looking for meals, but uh, to come together and eat together, I think, is is particularly a, an element that we like to do together, young and old. And so that is a huge part of actually our ministry, providing a, a regular meal. We have a group that serves at a homeless shelter. We serve the hungry. We partner with other organizations. Actually, that's a big part of our strategy is to not build our own things, but to partner with other organizations that are already doing amazing things for the city and jump on board to help them because one of our the advantages I think of any church is that what we have our killer feature when it comes to the community at large is we have volunteers so helping people get connected with organizations that are looking for volunteers that is a, a huge aspect of what we can do when it comes to that so we have actually intentionally not tried to start our own you know a soup kitchen for example because there's like multiple of them already happening that we would just love to get connected with and help in that context. So those all are kind of the to the traditional things that churches do. We try to do them thinking that everything that we do really is a representation of, of Jesus and be thoughtful about the fact that anyone is open to be involved in these activities. And so, again, we may have people who are engaging with Christianity for the first time join us for a worship gathering Uh, an opportunity to help the hungry, to be at, at one of our own meals. People will ask us, like, what does Avon Hope do for evangelism? I love to say, you know, everything is evangelism. Everything is about the good news. And I don't mean that in a way like we're trying to convince people to be a part of our community, you know, and manipulating them to be. But, like, we are representing Jesus in everything that we do, so we want to be thoughtful about that in all of our activities.
0: New York City was one of the places hit hardest by the COVID-19 virus back in the spring of 2020 at the start of the pandemic staying connected became extremely difficult for many of us but it also became way more important
2: you know one thing that we really intentionally did so we did go virtual with everything obviously our worship gatherings are the the most obvious element of that but we had a long long discussion series of discussions about what we were going to do for worship, whether we were going to stream worship or whether we were going to somehow keep the interaction element into it. And so we streamed for three weeks and decided this is not fulfilling our purpose. So years ago, we went through this intentional process of identifying what our purpose and our mission and our strategy is going to be. And that has guided us through this process. And our purpose is really rooted in living in worshiping community with God and loving community with each other. And so community is at the heart of that. How can you have community if you're not able to interact with each other? So that purpose helped shape how we did worship. So we said, we're going to not do the streaming because streaming is something you watch. And on top of that, there's millions of hours of things to stream on Netflix and you know, HBO Max and Disney and every church on the planet. So we're going to do something that uh, is not streaming. And so we've just stuck with Zoom and went all in on trying to make Zoom as interactive and awesome as it can be. Obviously, Zoom was not made for worship gatherings. So we've tried to, I mean, we've talked with technicians at Zoom and everything, figured out the music. We hired a videographer recently, which is a big step for us to run video through Zoom but then we also have the, uh, the interactive element of, like, people are, you know, we have an interview of people live, literally, on the spot. People we have a time to interact. We do breakout rooms. And all of that has really, I think, helped enhance the community. So we have people who say, like, the community is stronger now than it was pre-COVID. And the online element has facilitated that. So the community groups, which we had a policy of not doing online community groups, before COVID, they're all online now, and I would say flourishing more than they ever have. So obviously we wanna be back together in person at some point, but we have, we have not met in person outside of a few pop-up gatherings in Central Park when it was warmer, and everything has been completely online and we're gonna stick it out until it's really safe.
1: We talked to Todd in January, 2021. Several months later, Avon Hope began its phase one reopening which includes in-person worship services that require pre-registration. COVID stopped everything in its tracks, but many churches have been able to find renewed mission and innovate with how they do ministry. But more changes might be on the horizon.
0: By the time you listen to this podcast episode, several variants of the COVID-19 virus are growing and ICUs are filling up once again mostly with people who opted not to get vaccinated. It's no longer urban centers that are getting hit hardest by COVID. It's everywhere. And COVID is not the only challenge facing the church right now, especially in big cities like New York.
2: Doing the mission of the church, I think it is, one of the elements is having people that are willing and able to dedicate time or their career to actually Uh, coming and doing professional ministry, whatever that looks like, in a a place, right? So the Adventist Church historically has this idea of lay ministry and volunteers, which is great. It's incredibly important. That's a great tradition to have. But you also have to have every, every nonprofit or volunteer organization knows you have to have a balance between people who are giving their blood, sweat, and tears and really working to coordinate volunteers, to make things happen, to be successful in actually u- utilizing volunteers. And so I think one of the challenges is having people who are willing to go through the training and then come to places like New York or other places around the country and the world and really be dedicated to doing that work of developing strong ministries uh, in these, these places. And so it seems to me like that is that is the challenge you know for the next the five to the ten years are people who are willing to again prepare to do professional ministry whatever that looks like and i think there are various aspects of that it's not just pastoral ministry but certainly pastoral ministry too but then to be willing to come and do it and, and to do it in places that really need it you know there's so much that needs to be done here in new york city and uh, we need people who are willing to come and engage and do the ministry and help coordinate the volunteers and help to build the the structures that need to be in place to do awesome things. So to me, that seems like an outstanding challenge. We need people. (laughs) We need humans to come. And, of course, there are a lot of corollaries to that. You need financing to get humans here. You need to compensate them properly so that they can live in in our cities or live wherever they're going to be sent and I think the church needs to kind of grapple with the implications of that. Like if you're going to be involved in a Chicago or a Los Angeles or a New York or anywhere, you, you have to make sure that people are able to live in the community, to be engaged in the community, to know the community. They have to be there for a while. We've been here 12 years. Uh, there's an advantage to being somewhere for a while and being thoughtful like this is, this is the mission field that God has sent me to, and I'm going to stick around and learn how to best a minister to that community. So there are a lot of elements to that, but it really comes back to people. God is calling people to do mission work and not gigantic organizations. Hopefully they'll be helpful, but ultimately it comes to people who are engaged.
1: Thank you Pastor Todd Stout and the Church of Avon Hope for chatting with us. When this pandemic is over, we'll come visit the Met with you.
0: Think of a place in the North American Division that feels like the total opposite of New York City. Can you picture it? Because that's where we're going next.
1: We're headed halfway across the world to the Guam Micronesia Mission, located in the South Pacific. The islands that make up the Guam Micronesia Mission are actually closer to the Philippines and Japan than to the U.S. But Guam is a U.S. territory.
4: You know, when we talk about Guam Micronesia Mission, people say, "Would do you like take boats from island to island? And I'm like, Well, there's a little problem. So most people don't know that it's actually closer from New York to L.A. than it is from Majuro to Palau. So those are the two bookend islands in our territory. So Guam Micronesia Mission is the same geographic size as North America.
0: This is Ken Norton. And while he's recently accepted a position to be the president of the Montana Conference back here in the States, when we spoke to him first, it was January of 2021, and he was serving as the president of the Guam Micronesia Mission. And he loved it.
4: So, so passionate that I, I made a rap. I call it a poem because I get in trouble if I call it a rap. It's what we use for student missionaries, you know, to, to recruit SMs. Um, I tell them, you know, guys, it takes 30 seconds, which isn't a lot to tell you about a place that's really human and hot. Guam Micronesia is the place to be with sandy white beaches and a deep blue sea, but it's not those things that make it so great. It's the people, the kids, let me tell it to you straight. It's the most fun thing you could ever do to sit a little island kid down next to you and look into the eyes of that beautiful face and tell him about the Jesus of amazing grace. So what kind of things will you do when you're here? A lot could be said, but this I will share. You're going to teach, preach, Sunday at the beach, and then the next Sabbath do a little outreach. So get up your courage and your holy ambition and come join the team at Guam Micronesia Mission. It's fun because God's work is so fun. It, it is it's, it is the most rewarding thing. These SMs, student missionaries go home. Any of our volunteers that come out here, you go home, life changed. You spend a year in a classroom with you know, 35 kids jumping all over you and just that whole, that whole piece. And it's, it's very rewarding. So that's one thing that makes it really fun for us.
1: Much of the mission work that's done in these islands is done by student missionaries. Adventist colleges have student mission programs that allow students to take a year off and serve in a mission field. These can range from task force positions in the mainland U.S. to teaching English in Korea to serving in Europe or Africa, or in the case of Guam Micronesia Mission, spending your year teaching and serving the island communities that reside on the islands like Palau, Yap, or Majuro. Education is a pillar of Adventist identity and work, and it's something that's been exported all over the world.
4: Really, education out here is the tip of the spear for us. For It is our evangelism engine. Um, we've, we've got schools, you know, as much as we'd love to say, Hey, our schools are built around our churches. It really is the opposite. Our schools have been here for a long time. Um, we, we have several of our schools, they're 400, 450 kids, just a great community. That's very supportive. Whenever, whenever I arrive on any of the islands and I'm in immigration and they ask any questions, I just tell them. I'm, I'm here to visit the SDA school and it's just automatic stamp, move on. And then as, as I'm walking away, many times one of them will say, I graduated from SDA, you know, so there's a lot of loyalty in the islands for our education system. So our churches are many of them are vibrant. There's they're very strong, helping and working in partnership with the schools. We've got 22 churches that are spread around the islands and several groups and companies. So it's, it's a great partnership that really just focuses on the kids in the islands and and what many people don't realize is that, let's take Ebai, for instance. You know, Ebi is a tiny little island that has 15,000 people on it. It's 80 acres, all right? It's 0.14 square miles. It's tiny. But they're all packed in, 15,000 people packed on that size. Half of them are under the age of 18.
0: Even though the Guam-Micronesia mission is now under the North American Division territory, Adventist presence there on the island's didn't start with missionaries from the United States.
4: It really started back in the 1930s. Palau was the first place there was a Japanese pastor that ended up, uh, while it was under Japanese jurisdiction back then, that started the work there, started an Adventist group there. And then it pretty much stayed there until right after World War II. Um, It was in the late 1940s where to one of them was a nurse in the military. Started a service here on Guam, 1948. Had a family that was baptized. They, it's a really neat story, but just short. They, one of them, one of the soldiers was walking through a village, and he would just start up a conversation. It turned to spiritual things. He was an Adventist guy, and then they, as they talked about it, the family said, "Do you know of?" of a church who believes that Saturday is the seventh day. And so he's like, well, I just happened to know that. So they had this conversation, ended up baptizing the whole family. They became the core family that then just began to grow. So the headquarters was set up here. And right after the work really began in Guam was when the Guam uh, SDA clinic began back in the 1950s. Our clinic still is really the premier clinic. I mean, I know I'm partial, but you know, it's it's on the island. You, everybody knows SDA clinic, and so actually, when I am interdu- introducing myself, if I'm meeting people I don't know, I just tell them, "Yeah, I, I'm president of Guam Micro Mission, and we I helped oversee the SDA clinic." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that it makes the instant connection. It's really a hospital uh, without beds. It's we we do everything at this clinic. There's 200 employees. It's it's a it's a large operation. So they they have all different providers that do different branches of, of medicine. Once we established our school, and the school started in Palau, it started in Guam, it just was a trickle effect because so many people come through Guam um, that it just began to be, hey, can you help us start a school in this island? So slowly over the years, and it was in the 1980s where really the student missionary program kicked up to where SM started coming over until now we... We're heavily reliant. We have about 120 volunteer teachers a year that, that come out. This year is particularly devastating. I know we're going to get to the COVID thing in a minute, but our islands are still locked up. I mean, as we're talking, there's there's nobody coming and going except for Guam and Saipan. So it's been neat to see them pull people from the churches and just try, try to keep our schools going. It's been a slow growing history. And and I think for us, our passion now is look, we're we're we've we're only in 26 of the 92 islands. We have got we have no choice. I mean, I I make this joke, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stand before God in the judgment. He's like, you know. Uh, well, I know he's going to say, okay, it's time. It's time for, it's time for me to go and get my kids. And then, you know, uh, when an angel comes and says, I'm so sorry, you know, we can't go yet. There's still 66 islands where nobody's ever heard the truth about, well, who, who's in charge down there? You know, I, mean? I, mean, I know it's not, God's not like that, but I'm like, I'm not going to be the one to be like, well, that's me. You know what I did? No, we, we were you know, we actually bought a sailboat two years ago where it's a full-size boat, a yacht, really. It's almost 60 feet that before COVID, we were just really getting this thing launched and ready to go to try to reach some of those islands, because many of them don't have airstrips and so forth. so it because everything's so far away and it's and we're so and people are so isolated it's it's been difficult for the work to to continue on through there. But that's a little history and and we're just excited about
0: the future.
1: With the islands being so spread out? One of the biggest challenges facing those who want to do mission and humanitarian work with the people on the islands is access. How do you physically get to some of these remote islands?
4: You know, we have two islands right now who are saying, please, whatever you got to do. They already, they literally went, they bought, they shipped in from the state boat, they shipped in everything to build their own school. And they're like, we want Adventists to run our school. So we just, we haven't been able to get in there. Um, And and so we're going to stick with the pattern that works, which is most of these places we go, we want to start
0: small schools. When American culture comes into contact with another culture, there are things that tend to seep in and damage those we come in contact with. Both in more remote places and back here on the mainland, indigenous cultures have suffered as a result of American influence. One example of how this works can be seen in food. In many places, processed American foods have really taken over. Food deserts, areas that do not have fresh produce within a two-mile radius, are a major problem, and they're causing health issues within these populations. A rise in American influence and culture has disconnected these communities from their traditional food cultivation processes.
4: There's lots of big health issues that thank you, thank you, America, for opening up the shipping lanes back after World War II that just, you know, many of the Islanders had had told me when I was especially working in Palau, they said, we miss the days of, of just being able to live off the land and so forth. And now our kids, all they want is Pringles and Coke. There's just a great growing edge with the health message, be able to use it here that works. So those are the areas we want to continue to really be able to make a difference.
1: And this brings us to a really important question. There's a big conversation that's going on in our culture right now, both in Christian circles and in the political sphere, particularly as it pertains to mission and humanitarian work. By serving these communities, what if we are just forcing our way of life on them? Our education, our practices, our religion. When we look at world history, we see a pattern of cultures dominating other cultures and often erasing them in the process. When we think of the Crusades, British colonization, or the uprooting genocide and exile of indigenous cultures in the Americas, these were often done in the name of God. And the people who did it often felt righteous, almost as if they were the saviors of these people. But the outcome is clear entire people groups and their cultures, who are made in the image of God just as much as anyone else, were erased. God doesn't dominate. God created diversity and God embraces our differences.
0: So is missionary work in itself a bad thing? Mission work is a huge part of the Adventist identity but are we any different from the misguided missionaries of history? We asked Ken this question. The
4: first sailboat trip that we took was to an island where we've we've had work there a long time ago in the past, but I told the group that was going, I said, listen, I want you to meet with the leaders and I want you to ask them and simply ask them, how can we help you? What can we do to bless your community? What do you need? And as they sat there, the elders and leaders in the island said, simple, one of the things is water. I mean, 80% of us have dysentery all the time because we our, our water catchment systems are not good and you can help us with that. I mentioned before we started this, that I wanna be able to, things that we're doing that can help other people, other places. And I, I'm sure you've already Had this discussion with people in the past and podcasts, but you—the church has to ask the community what they need and how can we fall. We've got this thing so reversed for so long that we just we want them. We are going to provide you this, and if you can't have it, well, that's too bad. That's not the way Jesus worked. He was very much how can I, how can I serve you? So that's the kind of the, the method we're, mode we're taking.
1: People who do work in the islands often learn to understand, respect, and even appreciate the culture of the people that they are serving. With any ministry context, there are unique challenges, but there can also be strengths.
4: It's same, similar as in a Western context, but in, in the island context, family units are very tight They're, You don't win individuals here, you win families. And that makes it a, a big challenge because we always think about an evangelistic series and then somebody just coming and then, no, they, in Guam, they've told me, I've had people that have come and they said, if I join you, my family will literally, they'll just completely cut me off. And this is, these are huge families that are very tight. So those are, those are some of the challenges that we face, which we wish it could progress quicker, you know, but that's the challenge of the gospel anywhere, but we're trying to trying to work on those things.
0: So what's the biggest challenge for doing work in the Guam-Micronesia mission?
4: Water. I mean, that's, that's the most difficult piece is that the island of Palau patrols water uh, the size of Texas. That is what they're supposed to keep. You know, it's just, it's beyond comprehension of how vast it is out here uh, separating keeping us separate from those places that we we need to get to so I would say that's really number one is figuring out the practical way to to even get into places to serve them and I think number two is the very beautiful cultural aspect of community which creates a barrier and and makes it more difficult for the gospel and for truths of Seventh-day Adventism to get to to get into places because, because of that tight-knit community, which is a, amazing. This is one of the things that draws us to mission and draws people to be missionaries is to work in places where you're instantly included as family. I mean, you show up at a place and they just literally will feel like you've known these people your whole life. And they invite you to their house and eat and crack open the cold coconuts for you and sit around and just... That's just, that's beautiful. I think cultural differences, there are nuances in every island, but for the most part, island culture in itself is very, uh, you, you can kind of apply the same to all the islands. They're just very cordial very loving, open-armed people who give you the shirt off their back, just very, just beautiful people. So I I think that that is one of the reasons why when they connect with the gospel, they realize that's what Jesus was too. I love how different cultures, and we've worked in Thailand, my wife and I've, you know, been different places, and, and I realize that in each culture, I feel like God has preserved in their culture a beautiful aspect of Him. It's just like that gem that this culture shows a certain aspect of who he is. And of course, every culture has their negative dark sides. But the, some of those beautiful pieces, you're like, that's just like what Jesus is, is like.
1: People who do missionary work are often given an invaluable gift, permission, and opportunity to question your own culture. Seeing outside of your bubble, whether it be your religious bubble or your societal bubble or your cultural bubble is key in building empathy and understanding for people who are different than you.
4: I wish every single, you know, the Mormons, the Church of Latter-day Saints, they have a very expected program for their young people to spend two years out. I really wish we had something like that in the Adventist church. I mean, it is, it's life-changing. It absolutely is. You, you see yourself, you see your own weaknesses, you see the weaknesses of your own culture. All of that, you when you live and work in another culture, it just changes. It changes you, and it makes you a much stronger and better person in interacting with other people. I think a lot of the the racial tensions and all these things uh, would be could be done away with if people would just learn to work in other cultures where you're where you're really forced to see things with a different perspective. It just makes your arms open and say, "You're beautiful for who you are, even if you're
5: even if you're different." You know, it's just a it's a, it's a great thing. I'm going to step way out here and we're going to finish this with another rap. Is that okay?
4: Some will cross their arms and give a little sneer. Why is this pastor rapping when the end is near? Because the mission field's empty and the fields are white. That's unacceptable in the Lord's sight. This isn't rocket science, let the picture be clear. God wants you to serve out of love, not fear. No arm twisting or emotional tugs. This ain't about teary eyes or Sabbath morning hugs. It's about obeying the master's call. It's a choice you make to rise or fall. So rise to your feet, leave the others in the pew and answer God's call, he's calling you. Do you think it's fair? that we've got Jesus to share, yet many of us don't care that there's people living in despair. Some live in a nightmare, yet we won't go there to answer someone's prayer. Man, get up and go somewhere. Just get up and go somewhere.
1: Thank you to Pastor Ken Norton for talking with us and even rapping with us. Our next stop is a place you might have a lot of assumptions about. In the summer of 2020, Minneapolis, Minnesota was in the news a lot. After the killing of George Floyd at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer. Stories about unrest and rioting in Minneapolis blanketed the news coverage of the city. But Minneapolis is more than just one story. We wanted to talk to two pastors who actually live and work in Minneapolis to give us a full picture of what their city is like and how they meet the needs of their community.
5: Hey, my name is Sean Lee. I'm originally from South Korea. I love this place. I love the city. I love our community here. I'm here serving Southview Seventh-day Adventist Church as a senior pastor. Since 2016, on top of what I do as a pastor, I serve the city of Minneapolis as a police chaplain. So that's been ongoing so far.
0: While many Adventist churches only have one pastor, some churches have a team of multiple pastors, and Southview is one of those churches. Pastor Darnisha Thomas is the associate pastor there, and she focuses on children and youth. She's also the director for children's ministries at the Minnesota Conference, and she had a lot of assumptions coming to Minnesota too.
6: It's Minnesota. Like, who's out there in Minnesota? Is it like all I knew was Mall of America, Minnesota Timberwolves, Minnesota Vikings. I went to Minnesota in 2015 after GC and I was disgruntled and I had to do a youth retreat. And I said, why do people want to live out here? I will not (laughs) be caught dead in Minnesota. So let's just say God had the greatest sense of humor by sending me to a place that I did not expect I was going to be.
1: Just like other churches, the missional focus of Southview has morphed over the years, as the demographics and the needs of the community around it has changed.
5: Yeah, Southview Church was established in 1958. And it is interesting that it was a kind of conference project with the local congregations where they felt like they needed a church congregation south of Minneapolis or metro area. So they purchased the building first. It's not a congregation. They purchased a building first, and they had the charter member of 120. They got together, and they became church. And, yeah, it's been interesting. They bought a church from Richfield Lutheran Church. So a lot of Lutheran churches around here in Minneapolis and metro area and entire Minnesota, I guess. One big change that I, I see when I saw the picture when they started was uh, cultural diversity. Now we have is totally different. Like back then it was kind of one ethnic group church. And now, I mean, we average somewhere around 24 to 26 nationality represented every Sabbath before COVID. I mean, after COVID, I don't know, but before COVID. Um, and um, yeah, we the church was there for a long time, and church members like love it. Our head elder, for example, he was born in 1958 when. The church began, and this church is like his life, entire life.
0: The great thing about moving outside your bubble is that you're often pleasantly surprised by what you can discover out there. We all have assumptions about certain regions, about rural communities or urban communities, and about the hopes, dreams, and problems facing the people that live there. But actually exposing and immersing ourselves in them challenges these assumptions.
5: I used to live in Maryland. And Washington, D.C., like East Coast, typical metropolitan area. To me, Minneapolis was like, it's kind of city, but it's not like city, but it's not country, but it's a kind of mix with everything. I didn't expect this much cultural diversity here. We have a lot of refugee programs out of Hispanics. uh, I think one of the biggest Hmong community uh, in the United States in the St. Paul area. We also have a lot of African refugees coming to Mm -hmm. this community as well. A lot of Muslims too.
6: And it's actually been my first time ever seeing, because when you have like translations, you have Spanish, English, French, and then you see Arabic. Right. And I was like, wow, I never thought about that before. And it just shows how like intentional Minnesota is trying to be as far as diversity and inclusion. They still have some things they gotta work on, but it, it's a good start.
5: The metro area is pretty open and adapting changes. Like first Muslim women elected as con- you know, to the Congress, Ilhan Omar, is from, from here. So I don't know, I can say there's a lot of positive or negative attentions for that, for political reasons. But what I'm saying is, People are accepting and they're, they, they're open to see some changes taking place in the community. So I think that's very, very positive. And me being an Asian guy, I don't really feel like I'm one of those minorities. I just feel comfortable in the community. In our church, I'm the only Asian, well, not only Asian, only Korean guy. But I just don't feel like I am minority, minority. I don't feel that way. So this is a great community for me and my family to be around.
1: Like many city churches, the reality that many of the members commute to church and don't necessarily live in the community that the church is located in is a challenge. It means that the churches need to be even more intentional about building relationships with the community around it.
5: People just don't know us. Or people know us is because we are the congregation always bring tons of cars, around the neighborhood on Saturday morning. And they kind of didn't like that. And that's not the good, really positive PR for the, for the community. So like, I was like, okay, we need to study our community more. We are a commuting church. We don't have church members be really close by the church building. So I wanted to find out why, what can we do to serve the diversity. That our church itself is diverse in that regard. We kind of wanted to study more in, in, the, in the community. Where, from different connections here and there, I've, we found out that one of the prominent problem, the community problem that we have in the metro area, is homelessness. It's not like homeless that we imagine. It just housing price in the metropolitan, the metro area of Twin Cities, is just ridiculous these days. The houses that they put on the market, it's gonna be sell like this. And you have to offer more than, that, than the listing price. So a lot of people, they cannot afford housing. So that's the like big, big problem. And within that problem, you know, I asked different like social workers and like human services in our community, there are just too many homeless youth where government charities or churches have no idea how to address that. So like I came up with this idea, you know what, if that's the thing, then we need to do something about it, you know, as a a church. We wanted to engage with the different organizations, whether they are Christian or not, if they are working with the community, we just want to partner with them. Our big thing is we are not going to create wills by ourselves. If there's a good thing out there, we're open to reach out to them and partner with them for the common good of the community. And also we can build a kind of relationship with people have a really good will for the community where we can learn a lot from them.
0: Each church decides how they want to serve their community. And there are really endless possibilities in how to do that because everyone has unique needs. And you never know how the relationships you build with people now will influence your ability to serve them later.
5: Since I'm in the police department, some connections, when there's something happening that I get a lot of volunteers from our church to involve in supporting first responders. For example, when we had a Super Bowl two years ago, there were a lot of Southview volunteers out there to serve meals and to serve the first responders who came And that's the coldest time of the year here.
1: One of the biggest ways that a church can serve the community is just being present. When we develop relationships with the people around us, we can be aware and attentive to their actual needs.
6: When I first came in, I was told that in Minnesota, they're known for top of the line education system. But when I started talking with the teachers, I said there is an achievement gap. Of course, housing is, is a factor. Food insecurity is another factor. We have um, an indigenous group, um, Native American population as well. And you see that there's some challenges there as well. And I know as someone of color, as a, as a Black pastor, my first response was to join the NAACP chapter in the Minneapolis area.
1: I did that because I need to know what's going on. The NAACP or the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, is an organization that identifies and addresses factors that create and reinforce inequality. Because it spent over 100 years doing this work, each chapter has its hand on the pulse of what's really affecting its communities. Things like education, mental health, and the need for prison reform and restorative justice and civil rights. From Darnisha's experience, Organizations like this are invaluable partners for people trying to understand the needs of those in their communities.
6: So I wanted to sit in to see how I could help as a pastor, how my church could help and how we can um, connect. And so far, I've just been checking in. I sat in on a couple of meetings and even as far as children is concerned, just being able to learn like the resources needed.
1: Darnisha also checks in and partners with organizations like the Ronald McDonald House, the Youth Service Bureau, and the Minneapolis Crisis Nursery, which seeks to help kids who might otherwise fall through the cracks. Not every kid is dealing with the same struggles. So when churches partner with multiple organizations that are already doing the work, they can serve more kids than they would be able to on their own.
6: So it's just how do we connect? How do we build that kind of relationship with these individuals, with these children? So I'm able to just try to connect more. I was trying to, uh, to build more relationships with the public school system. Um, though we have a church school, but I know that we have kids who are also in the public school system. And just being able to minister to these individuals, I was able to show up to a couple, I did a couple of visits with our teachers that were serving in those areas and just even being able to connect with some of the students and some of the teachers there was an experience. Because so they're like, oh, there's a pastor that's visiting, that's visiting me. So my approach has always been the ministry of presence.
1: And when tragedy hit Minneapolis in May 2020, the groundwork that Pastor Sean, Pastor Darnisha and the members of Southview had cultivated in their surrounding community through the Ministry of Presence enabled them to minister to their hurting community in deep and profound ways. This was not something happening to others. Southview was a true part of the Minneapolis community.
5: I think George Floyd is is a sad reality that all of us to kind of had to process in. More depressing thing is just because of this politic involved in this because of this year election, I was like, when I saw that the police building burning burning, I was like, Okay, I think I will see this uh, on the election ad for the rest of this year. We have a big portion of our congregation are African immigrants or African Americans, and just Across the race line, everyone was disturbed. We published the statement right away with the help of Darnesha. We make the statement available on our social media because we wanted to make sure that our church, especially younger ones, that we care about what's happening uh, around our community. I gave them slot, the hey, you reflect that and share your thoughts to our congregation. It was appropriate for us as a church in the community to respond to a thing like that by saying this is where we stand as, as God's people and also as human beings. I'm involved in the Minneapolis police. I'm not a police officer, though, but I know the people. I work with the people. Our church was involved with that people. Some people have this perception that Pastor Sean is a police chaplain. He's a pro-police guy. I'm not. I'm a firm believer of Adventist presence should be everywhere. Like when we did that march, Darnisha, if you remember, I was there with Pastor Darnisha and other pastors. We did the march on that day from the one location to the George Floyd Memorial, which is 38 in Chicago hour after I changed my uniform and I was in the police department and I was with the police officers. I kind of do my chaplain work. I think that was a time where we're all caught up into this fear as a community, as a church, all this fear, like, you know, like what's, what's going to happen, you know, after. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the moment when we realized that, you know, this Adventist message where, You know, we're not looking into the perfect world. Eventually, this worldly thing will be, it's going to be gone. All the system that we created. I think that was a moment where people realized that yeah, Minneapolis has been a wonderful community with, you know, this is a wonderful city. Our life was relatively going well. And all of a sudden, George Floyd, the thing happened one like, person can be treated so badly by the law enforcement that can be anyone, especially sadly people in color. But at the same time, your livelihood can be gone by something that you totally didn't expect. Right. And that entire city can be in trouble. I think that was a time to reflect for a lot of, a lot of church members, mm-hmm. and even myself. Like, I was literally thinking, like, well, should I quit this? <laughs> Somebody literally sent me a direct message, like, hey, yo, you got you to gotta delete that on your Facebook. Because in my Facebook, as one of careers, it says, I'm a pastor at Southview, and also I'm a police chaplain in the Minneapolis mm-hmm. you know, Police Department. And, you know, you would be hated for that. And I was struggling, like, do I want to quit this? But later, I, I thought, you know what, this is a calling. You know, this is a calling. And I'm so proud of Pastor Darnisha involved in NAACP. You know, I have in my congregation, we have a civil rights you know, attorneys, and I'm a pastor who is involved in the police. We're in the same boat, right? We're not enemies. When things like that happen in your community, regardless of political or regardless of the tension, I think we need to have the Adventist presence everywhere. If we don't have Adventist presence everywhere, I think we're failing. Either people don't know us or we don't care. After that, the protest unrest, you know, that all these burning things that our women's ministry uh, leaders, they came up with this idea: the groceries, and and that started first. That they delivered the groceries to the community where the those groceries stores were burned down. The interesting thing was, though, those groceries, the 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 area that was affected by this, were not really affluent area. They they are relying on those stores, they're relying on those banks, and all of a sudden. Entire thing was gone. And I'm so proud of our sister churches, Ebenezer and Minneapolis First, where they already had this established system of distributing these groceries. I was willing to walk on the march with other clergy members to protest, because I think that was wrong. But at the same time, hour later, I changed uniform, I go into the department because it's like a, like a mission that Jonah received, like. Who's going to go there if there's nobody's going there? I met the single mom whose daughter is the officer who was in the same shift with that, you know, that officers were involved. And now, you know, it's because her daughter is working in that department. She lost all her friends. Mm. Facebook friends unfriended her. I met this college kid whose father is the officer. He literally said that my friend, they don't talk to me anymore. And he lost literally all his friends. And in this, this like, I don't know how old was he, but he said he was like junior or sophomore year, broke down. He said like tall, this big guy, he was just broke down. That and I'm not saying, I'm trying to say that the police is okay or what happened. That's not what I'm trying to say. I just want to say that I witnessed a lot of sufferings of people from that, and our role as pastors is like how do we turn these sufferings into something good, mm-hmm. and that is not really possible if you're not there. The Facebook post doesn 't really change anything I I'll just be honest like you can like put like hundreds of posting one day, but if you are physically not there, you are not really making any impact and I'm trying. I'm not saying I'm I'm doing a great job. I think Pastor Darnish is trying. We're all trying to be that ministry of presence to the community where, you know, we want to bring that presence of God. It's more kind of chaplain work, I guess, but that's what we're trying to do. But still, that, that wound is still there.
1: The pastors at Southview occupied a unique space during this conflict. Sean's experience as a police chaplain and Darnisha's experience as a female African-American pastor in the U.S. meant that as a team, they had a unique responsibility and ability to rise above politics and minister to the hurting community in Minneapolis. All of it. It was challenging, but a challenge that they were well-equipped for.
6: Pastor Sean brought it out. Like he mentioned it to me. He said, you know, you're the first non-white woman pastor at Southview. And then he also brought up like and you're basically the only African-American woman pastor in this conference. And I'm like, OK, no pressure. <laughs> so it's it's always quite interesting to like that. When people see us, it's like, wow. So there is a Korean senior pastor and there is an African-American woman pastor occupying this church. And, and I'm grateful for that. And for me, from my experience in in pastoral ministry, I felt like I had to bite my tongue in beginning stages of my, of my ministry, try to play it safe, try not to bring up stuff. But then I think back at my upbringings and the thing with, you know, in the African-American experience is that we bring that to the church to raise awareness because most of our members aren't impacted by these systems that Pastor Sean brought about. These systems are not sustainable for people of color. And so when I, um, so I made the vow when I came to Southview and that was the reason why I came to Southview was because when Philandica still happened, Pastor Sean was the one who suggested, hey, let's get a couple of people and let's go pray with the protesters. That's what caused me to say, all right, you know what? I think, I, I think I'm going to, I'm going to seal the deal with, with with Southview, not knowing that George Floyd was going to happen. So from that, I was like, OK, this is my role. I just got through with devotion, my time with God. And I, and I asked God to help me to be able to be fully used by him in this season. I was burnt out by COVID. I lost a lot of motivation in ministry and all of a sudden, I, I check on my Facebook and there's a protest. My first reaction was Pastor Sean. I text him and I said, hey, are you aware of this? Because I wanted to know how he was doing. Because just to, you know, it was really hard to see, um, you know, my senior pastor who serves as a police chaplain, like to go through that. and. You know, I was moved to tears because we were we were getting texts whenever he was out, like, hey, we just found out someone broke into the police precinct. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. So for me, I was like, should I go out? Where George Floyd was killed was fifteen minutes away from Southview Church from our from our congregation. So when I went and I saw people like from various walks of life just protesting, you had Asians, you had Caucasians, you had like Hispanics, people were out and about. And it was just so assuring to see people like out there just protesting for change. And then there was a sister, just a, a passerby, and she said, they better to go to the police precinct. I'm not going, I'm not marching over there, but I'm gonna drive over there. So I'm like, all right, sis, I'm gonna follow you. We stopped by closer to where the police precinct in and we just got like a, you know, we marched the the last couple of legs out there. She said, okay, this is pretty close. So let's just pull over. I see like there was a police car that was close, and there was people that were about to just give them a piece of their mind uh, to say the least. But what I know, and I had a picture of it, I had a picture of it and there was a part where one of the protesters said, leave them alone, let's get back to the mission. So instead of them about to like, you know, let this police officer like, you know, get whatever they, whatever was expected, they said, let's get back to the mission. Let's get back to the mission. And that was really affirming to hear that. It showed that it was a peaceful protest. I could say that, like just for being out there in the trenches, I had a friend who got arrested. One thing that really stood out to me while she was getting arrested, she said, it's okay guys, Jesus got arrested. And guess what? He also died because he loves you. While she was being arrested. And I said, if that is not witnessing, that is not preaching the gospel, then what is? We have an Adventist um, youth that was shot in the cheek. Um, for peaceful protesting. Like we have a lot of our kids, our youth, they were out marching. And it was really affirming to have my senior pastor with me to support. And, you know, as an African-American pastor, it was hard because, you know, I think about, you know, this could have been my dad. This could have been my brother. My father survived Jim Crow South. So of course it really hits home. Pastor Shaw was right. We were all raw. I was raw, like I was the epitome of raw. I just, I went on to the prayer vision. I said, I'm not speaking to you as your pastor, as your woman pastor, I'll speak to you as your black woman pastor, I'm fed up. I was just tired. I, I I just got so sick and tired of being sick and tired because before George Floyd, we heard about Armand Arbery who was shot while jogging. So, that all of that just came and just manifested. And I just got, I was tired and I had to give myself permission to lament. I've had people that had a problem with me speaking out as a pastor, but I said, I have been biting my tongue for too long. I have been, I I cannot see my people die like this. I have my kids who are worried if they're next. I have women, my women's group who are afraid not sure if their son or their or their husband will come home in one piece. I have black girls who are afraid if their dad is going to come home alive, if their brother is going to come alive, if their uncle is going to come alive. I cried to I cried. To so I cried to Sean. I cried to my um, I cried to so many people like that was the most vulnerable state. And it got to the point that I had to take a mental health day. Cause I'm like, I don't feel like being a pastor right now. Like this is, so I think like for those listening give yourself permission to lament. Um, Cause I think, you know, we have a prophetic message and I was a weeping prophet. <laughs> I was literally Jeremiah. Like it, that's just, and, it, and it's natural. It's a part of it because you're acknowledging your feelings. You're giving yourself permission to feel you're able to express that. But at the same time, I think one thing that I tell people is you have to feel the pain in order for you to receive healing. So when I say, ouch, you know, if I have a fracture, I'm going to acknowledge that it's bleeding. And that my, bro- my bone is broken. And I'm going to cry a little bit to acknowledge the pain. But after that, then the healing takes place. And it's not a band-aid healing. You got to clean the wound. You got to stitch it up. You got to let it, healed from the inside. And that's something that I wanted to mention to my members. Um, and I've, and I've always had this quote that says, don't expect to evangelize someone you're not willing to advocate for. And that's something that, and I, and I've said it everywhere I go because it's true because if we're talking about preaching this three angels message, if we're talking about preaching revelation and Daniel and trying to get people coming to our revival series, what have you done? during this situation, are you viewing them as a person? Do you see them for who they are or are you just using them as a mere number? And that was my goal was, I don't want the people that come to my church to think that they're a number in, my, in our membership books. I wanna view them as who they are. I wanna see their color because God does see color. People say, I don't see color. No, God sees color. Look outside, look at creation. What I really appreciate with my senior pastor, Sean, was that we did a sermon series about the image of God last year. That was what caused me to strengthen my theology of being out and and having this ministry of presence. He mentioned, we are called to share this image of God. George Floyd's passing, his, his death, was a representation of an image of God that was defiled. I've always made sure is that whatever I do in ministry and even my personal life is based on that theology of how we view people. And now I'm in a better place and now I have hope. I'm able to get that sense of hope that this is all gonna be over and everything's gonna be made new, and that you know, God, God's goodness, we can still see God at work despite the crazy stuff that's happening here. And that's something that I'm grateful for.
5: You know, pastors are human, too. And we feel the pain. We feel the pressure. And sometimes when you have, like, this, this, a lot of pressure and stress coming in, we are humans. Like, sometimes it's just difficult to come up with a good sermon. (laughs) The day when the precinct burned down, I could not eat for a day. Uh I could not function. Uh We all want to see the, you know, the, this peace and thriving community around us. But when things like that, it affects us, too. And also, it takes some time for us to figure out and process what we can do in order to make some positive you know, impact on the community, you know, affirm them their callings, and encourage them. Sometimes spiritual leaders need that encouragement, too.
0: thank you to pastors Darnisha Thomas and Sean Lee of the South View Seventh-day Adventist Church for taking the time to speak with us, sharing their stories, and calling us to remember that we're all human beings.
1: And now we're at our final stop, way up north, further north than most of Canada, and less than 200 miles from the easternmost town in Russia. This is Gnome, Alaska. When I think of Gnome, I think of that movie from the 90s about the sled dog that had to run medicine through the Alaskan wilderness to save that little girl.
0: Oh, you mean Balto? Yeah. I love the movie Balto. Gnome is a place you have to work really hard to get to, physically and spiritually.
7: You go through enough moments to where it's like, it's like, God, really, why do you have me here? And he, he answers that question just day by day. But there are some times where we're like, I never saw that coming. Absolutely never saw that coming. And now that we have some exposure to what he's unfolded here for us, I'm like, you are a master planner. And I just got to shut up, look up and listen up. Like, for real, because you have some serious plans that I, I just, I'm I'm done. I'm done trying to plan myself. I'm done trying to organize or, or to do whatever a European Anglo American Adventist cultured, like pastor supposed to do in the eyes of the constituents and just here's your plan. And I'm like, wow, this is definitely why I signed up to be a pastor. I'm like, God knows exactly why you're here, because you have an area of ministry that he wants to tap into that has not really been broken into due to the confines of what Anglo-American, Seventh-day Adventist culture, pastoral ministry has boxed us into. And as a native Alaskan, I have struggled with that. How am I going to be native Alaskan and be true to my roots and be Seventh-day Adventist as well? So my name is Chad Anguson. I am a local of Dillingham, Alaska. I grew up there for the first 10 years of my life. And Dillingham consists of mainly a seasonal kind of cash crop, which is salmon. I've been a commercial fisherman gill netting on a 32-foot boat for about 16 seasons of my life. And we would fish every summer. But in 1998, God took our family down to Keene, Texas, which blew my socks off culturally because I was just like, wow, this is a, so much bigger of a world than Southwest Alaska. And that's really, I've been an Adventist my whole life but culturally I have not known what Adventism was in an Adventist hub. And the whole scene in Dillingham was if you were the strongest and if you could beat somebody up, you know, and, and if you could put somebody down, you know, with your, your flashy put downs, or if you can get into the partying scene, if you could drink a lot or smoke a lot and, you know, whatever hookups you have like, that was the cool thing. But you go to Keene and it was like 180. It's like, If you got perfect attendance, that was the coolest thing. If you got like all A's and B's, that was the cool thing. If you got principal's honor roll, which was all A's, that was the cool, like people looked at you like, whoa, you're so smart. And so this whole world just kind of like blew my mind and it was, it was different.
0: While he was at Walla Walla, Chad studied engineering and he came across an article that asked, if you had enough money, would you still go to school? And what would you really want to be?
7: And I stood back and I was like, I was in the middle of calc, right? I was calc midterms, chemist, G-chem midterms. And I'm like, I don't want to be an engineer. Like if I had all the money in the world, I don't want to be an engineer. I go back to my dorm room after reading this article and I open up the door and one of my friends there, he looks at me and I grew up with him when I was in Keene, and he goes, Hey, I just got into talking to my mom and she thinks she'd make a great youth pastor. I was like, what? I dropped my key card and I looked up at the ceiling as if God was there. You know, I was like, really out of all the places, because the article that I was reading was a urinal journal. Okay. This is called a UJ and it's plastered up by the urinal above the urinal. And as you're sitting there and you're reading the article, I was like, out of all the places that you could have called me, you called me when I was the most vulnerable, which makes sense. And in the bathroom, I was like, "Well, that's that's the Lord for you, you know. Get get you where you're, you're, you're malleable and vulnerable." And apparently, <laughs> right after that, I switched my major f- from engineering to theology. And then shortly after that, I graduated, got married, and this is where my whole life changes out of all the places that God could have taken me to my first church, he takes me to Togiak, Alaska. Now, friends, for those of you who are listening, Togiak, Alaska is a small village of 800 people that you have to fly to fly to fly to get to. So let's say you're in Seattle. You take a jet, you go to Anchorage, the biggest city, naturally. From Anchorage, you take a a flight to Dillingham, and then from Dillingham, You take a little six-seater, what we call them puddle jumpers, to Togiak. And there, when you land and you're like, where are we landing? And you see this dirt strip that shouldn't be a runway, but it is. You land and you're like, this is where you're going to start your ministry, Chad. My wife was a city girl. She looks at me with wide eyes and she is as wide as they can get. All right. She is from the East Coast. She was born. In D.C., and she was raised in Anchorage. Total city girl looking at me like, what are we doing here? I'm like, we prayed about it. You said yes, so we're here. (laughs) But here's where the story gets incredible. Our first six months were hell. And I mean a straight up biblical hell. Like all the things that the devil can possibly tempt you with to dissuade you from ministry. He did it. And just a couple of examples were uh, just the isolation, trying to figure out what is the cultural atmosphere like. And for me, I was, I'm native Alaskan. I was, again, coming from Alaska, I'm, I'm half white, I'm half native, and I know what it's like in both worlds. And so that gave me a really big foot into ministry because I can understand the Adventist perspective of what ministry supposed to look like. Right. But on the other side, as an Alaskan native, I know what it's actually going to, I know, I know what's going to actually be effective. As we were doing a, a little church service for the, for the kids, there's a little six-year-old boy who sat himself in my wife's lap. And this is where the story gets good. A native Alaskan culture to kiss on the lips is like, if you're in my emotional circle enough and you've met my family and my family's met you, it's not uncommon for a younger kid to kiss another adult who's a familial friend on the lips. It's just, it's just what happens culturally. That's what I was raised with in my family. That's just how we greeted and showed affection to each other so i told my wife this before we got the to Togiak. i was like babe if a kid just puckers up at you i'm just gonna give you awareness right now because i know your family doesn't kiss each other on the lips like we do because i know like compared to other cultures we're straight up weirdos but that's just what we do to show each other affection and sure enough this little six-year-old boy plops himself in her lap during a church program, and then right afterwards, he looks up at her with his beady little adorable eyes, and he just puts his lips up, and if you could see a little brown, beautiful child pucker up his lips as hard and as wide and as big as he can, that's what he did to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth melted. There was just like, there was no way that she was not going to kiss this kid. And all just, boom, landed a big old smooch. And she looked at me and I knew that look and no words were needed. It was my heart is melted and I'm hooked. There was no way that look was telling me there was no way we're leaving this place. Like this was something that was really incredible to see because my wife was being let in as one of their own. And for a white person, that is huge. I'm like, whoa, I was bivocational. So I I worked as a pastor and then I worked up at the school full time with Elizabeth as a special education teacher's aide. And it was amazing because I'm looking at, I'm looking at an empty church. The majority I had like six members that would come each week these were natives that were discipled into Adventism and it was still like they were, they were trying to figure out how they can be an Adventist and native at the same time, just like myself, because a lot of our cultural beliefs don't fit in with an Anglo American seventh day Adventist perspective of what it means to be an Adventist. Like biblically, we know how to follow the Bible. Yeah. But like, like, Oh, Oh, this is what we're supposed to do. And it was almost like it became this checklist of do's and don'ts versus an actual relationship with Jesus. So what God was showing me there through these kids and then meeting the people there was, you're not here to show them a checklist. You're here to show them me. I need you to get to know me through the Bible and through prayer, but the goal is for you to get to know me. And then I need you to shine my character out through your thoughts, your words and your actions. And that's what I've called you there to be. And so from 2012 on, it just became this this realization that pastoral ministry wasn't this facade like i how i had this picture like it was a facade that you had it like you live your life at home one way and then when you put your suit and tie on and you preach on sabbath it's another but god was saying like that's exactly what i do not want you to do please don't do that. And he's like, I need you to be you, but I need you to understand that. Yes, you're not perfect. Yes. You're not groomed as how other people expect you to be, but you are mine. Nonetheless, you're mine. And I need you to show these kids that they're mine too. And so from then on, Elizabeth and I, we get called to go to seminary and oh my goodness, it was like pulling teeth. My wife looked at me and she's like, we are not Leaving our kids. And just like that, my wife is telling me, You are not leaving. We are not leaving our kids. And, but sure enough, like it was coming to the point where it was just like, I either go to seminary now or I'm here in Togiak for another decade. And the Lord knew that He had other plans for me. And Elizabeth.
0: Chad and Elizabeth got a call to go up to Nome, Alaska. And that's where they are today.
7: And it's just it's a place that if you had no purpose coming to, which either on one that on the one hand, you're a health professional, you're an educator or you are a minister. Otherwise, you were born there. You have familial ties outside of those confines. You shouldn't be there, <laughs> but nonetheless, God had a purpose for us being here, uh, ministering to this wonderful community of Nome and also of Kotzebue. My wife, Elizabeth, had so much resentment toward God and towards myself about leaving Togiak because the year and a half that we were there, we touched the hearts of these kids on a level that I would have never expected And seriously, the average lifestyle of a kid in Togiak is, you know, their mom and dad's most likely partying. So the reason why they go to school tired is because not because they were up on their phone all night, perhaps maybe that may be the case in some areas, but most likely some sort of family that was watching them was partying, gambling, drinking, doing whatever. And it was keeping the kids up at night. And the thing is, the teachers know this, the schools know this, the locals that work at the school know this and what is it that we're going to show them that's different i didn't really realize how god had such a powerful impact with elizabeth and i just living there number one i was a native alaskan just like they were and they're like wait you don't smoke you don't drink you don't do any of these things and yet you're you're us so why don't you drink why don't you smoke And then you don't have a girlfriend that you have kids with. You you have a wife and you don't have kids like, okay, this is catching my attention. And then all they wanted to do was just be around us at the church. That's all they wanted to do. From the moment we left Togiak on all the way up until right now, as we speak, and I've been about a year and a half here in Nome in full-time ministry. We were discipling these kids for about eight years. And the amazing thing, the, ma- the amazing full circle story that I wanted to share is that little did I know that four kids from Togiak that we were discipling for eight years would end up living with us.
1: It was painful for Chad and Elizabeth to leave Togiak for seminary. But what they didn't know was that in a few short years, these kids would find their way to their door.
7: And like, I'm sitting here as a father, and even though it's not a biological father, I'm just, my mind is blown because God had a plan so much bigger than Elizabeth I can ever, ever imagine. And so this is the bottom line. What is it like for a native Alaskan, Seventh-day Adventist pastor here in northwestern Alaska what is it really like to do ministry up here? It's tough. You got a lack of sunshine, lack of nutrition that you wish you would have had such as fresh produce, you know, of that season that you have really accessible, especially in the Northwest. Oh my goodness. I miss, I miss Northwest produce, but you see the need that is here. And little did Elizabeth and I know that we were going to be parental figures for these four kids one of them being a young adult, that look up to us and literally call
5: us mom and dad.
1: The support and care Chad and Elizabeth have given these kids through their ministry an incarnational ministry can't really be overstated. To have a loving, safe home, a supportive family in all circumstances is something that many kids never experience. And Chad and Elizabeth are already passing it through to the next generation. Their oldest had a baby of her own earlier this spring.
7: I did not know I was gonna be a 33 year old grandfather, but that's gonna be my reality, which is pretty awesome. Didn't expect that. I mean, I, yes, I am growing some grays on the side of my head, but um not to not enough to recognize me as a grandfather. But here's the cool thing: God has incredible plans for me, for my wife, for these kids, and for anybody who just says yes to him. Yes, especially if it's in the bathroom, like myself. God's like, hey, I want you to serve me. Yes, I'm calling you in the bathroom. Get over it. Like, no, it's just He has such incredible plans. And here's the cool thing that I wanted to leave with you guys. These kids, when they first got into our house, didn't have expectations like they did at home. There were chores that had to be done. Homework had to be done. Phone time was earned by reading and doing schoolwork. And this was just like, what? I just can't be on my phone all day? Well, no. (laughs) But the cool thing was this every time that we have family worship in the morning and in the evening, these kids look at us and sometimes we'll hear things like with tears running down their face, letting us know that God is healing their heart. In other words, if I were to die tomorrow, but before I died realizing that I was going to die and look back at my life, just for those moments that these kids could experience the healing that they've been experiencing, it was worth it. This was all worth it. So what is it like to be a Seventh-day Adventist minister who has uh, a mix of cultures in him? You know, it's pretty amazing because when you get past the expectation of whatever facade that we think that we're supposed to have, or to live, when you get past all that, just kind of <laughs> expectational molding, I don't know what you wanna call it, how or how you would articulate it, I would just say this, that waking up the next morning just saying yes to God, He will blow your socks off because He has some pretty incredible plans for you, especially when it comes to changing the lives of those who are looking up to you.
1: Thank you, Pastor Chad, for speaking with us. And congrats on becoming a grandfather. Even though these churches are extremely different, there's something that they all have in common. They are looking to the actual needs of their communities. Church at its best is part of the culture around it, not separate from it. It's involved in the lives and aware of the needs of the people around it regardless of if those people are members or not.
0: Every community and every people has its own unique challenges, and they require unique solutions and approaches for their specific context. The message stays the same, the gospel, but the mode that you use to deliver that message should depend on the immediate context of the people you're trying to reach. We have to ask, what are their physical needs? What philosophical, ethical, and political questions are they facing? What are their ages, races, and genders?
1: A healthy church builds relationships with the world around it. It's only then that they can truly serve the people in it.
0: Engaging with the world around us in a healthy way is not always something that Adventists have done well. We can tend to isolate ourselves or use heavy-handed language and rhetoric and try to argue people into our point of view, which often has completely the opposite effect.
1: But we have to look up and see the context of the world around us if we're going to make any difference in it.
0: Looking back over this series as a whole, we've talked a lot about our history as a church, but as we move into the future, we're asking ourselves, What context are we living in now? What challenges are we facing both as a church and as a society?
1: In our final episode, we're going to take a look at our current context, the world around us, and what that means for the future of Adventism.
3: How the Church Works is hosted by Nina Vallado and Caleb Isley. Thank you to all of the pastors who joined us for this week's episode. Pastor Todd Stout, Pastors Darnisha Thomas and Sean Lee, Pastor Ken Norton, and Pastor Chad Anguson. You can find bonus content for this episode on our website, howthechurchworks.com. This episode was written and produced by me, Heather Moore. All episodes are edited and mixed by the multi-talented Nina Vallado. Our logo design is by Brittany Colby, website and social media by Chelsea Arnina. Thank you to Stephen Hussett, our tech and equipment expert. The show is executive produced by Adam Fenner, Heather Moore, Kayla Beisley, and Nina Vallado. Special thanks to the North American Division of Seventh Day Adventists and the Adventist Learning Community for making this podcast possible. We would love to hear from you if you want to send us an email. Just send it to hello at howthechurchworks.com.